Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I love dinosaurs. In fact, I love dinosaurs quite a bit. And one of my all-time favorite movies is Jurassic Park. You guys used to see my old studio, which had the Jurassic Park movie poster on, on the back wall. And I hope to put that back up, by the way. Uh, I've been meaning to, but moving into the new space, I haven't really been able to do that just yet. But it's coming, I promise you, because dinosaurs are one of the most fascinating creatures on the faces of the earth. They are incredible, incredible creatures, to be honest with you. And they help us really understand what life would have been like if we were living in their era, <laughs> if we were living back in those days. Can you imagine walking with dinosaurs or uh, trying to run from a T-Rex or a Velociraptor or something that just wanted to, to eat you all up? Today, I had the pleasure and privilege of speaking with a paleontologist. He is the first ever paleontologist that I've ever had a conversation with on the Storybox podcast, which is uh, saying something. Honestly, I love this conversation. Uh, his name is Hans Seuss. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, after receiving his PhD in biology from Harvard University in 1984, uh, Hans conducted research as a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University and the Smithsonian on earlier Mesoic vertebrates and ecosystems in 1992. He became curator of the vertebrae paleontology uh, at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, and he joined the faculty of the Department of Zoology at the University of Toronto. In 1999, Hans was appointed vice president of collection and research at the Royal Ontario Museum and later held equivalent senior management positions at the uh, Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh 
and the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., which is now a senior fellow, research geologist, and curator of fossil vertebrates in the Department of Paleobiology and at the National Museum of Natural History, which is pretty cool. I can't wait to get over there myself and actually have a tour with Hans, who has said that he will do that for me, which is just making me even more excited the more I think about it because I'm a huge history nerd. If you can't already tell by the way I'm speaking right now, his research program centers on terrestrial vertebrae diversity and uh, funnel changes, faunal, sorry, faunal changes during the late uh, Paleozoic and Mesozoic eras and the evolutionary history of Archosaurian reptiles, especially dinosaurs. And we do... Uh, talk about that during this conversation. Of course, I, I did want to uh, make this conversation a lot of fun. I had an absolute ball speaking with Hans, Hans and, and asking him so many questions about dinosaurs, but also the evolution of dinosaurs, why we can't actually make dinosaurs today with, uh, you know, how they talk about in Jurassic Park with DNA and combining DNA and all those sort of things, why dinosaurs went extinct, how they went extinct from his perspective, and so much more. It's really, really a fascinating conversation. hope that you guys enjoy this one. I know that I did. Um, but yeah, enough from me. Uh, you guys know what time it is. It's time to journey with me into Storybox. And if you are a lover of dinosaurs, you're in for a real treat because this one is all about dinosaurs the most part as we also listen to the incredible wisdom the advice and the stories of none other than Hans Zeus Hans can I welcome you so much to the Storybox thank podcast you so much today for having me Jay thank you so much for being here man like I said I'm very much looking forward to unboxing your incredible story you got a lot of a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of history behind you, which yep. is, is honestly incredible. So I'm, I'm sure that we'll have quite a bit to talk about during this conversation. Before we dive into all those wonderful things, and I do want to uh, make my audience even more enticed by speaking about dinosaurs in, in just a moment, but uh, what does success look like for you? Well, success looks like a lot of different things for me, depending what area it is. For me, in terms of research, is to uncover completely new things to help understand like major episodes in the evolution of life on Earth. In terms of public outreach and communication, it is to sort of really inspire people about science. And you know, a lot of people think that science is this odd, obscure activity that's not very public friendly. But the fact is that particularly in my area, which is sort of broadly known as natural history, this is something that people can relate to once it is explained to them, once people see what wonders nature really has to give us, both in the present day and in the very long past that Earth has had. So those, those are very important aspects to me. And, and then, of course, scientifically, it is, you know, really sort of understanding very fundamental things about the history of life on Earth and basically also our place as humans in life, you know, because we're often, so often people talk about humans as being somehow outside nature, and that's absolutely not the case. We are very much part of nature. And that's a very important realization when we look at issues such as environmental change and so on. We, we can't dissociate ourselves. Whatever happens to nature will happen to us as well. So. Mm. I 
was never good at science in school. And yet now I'm finding it far more fascinating. Uh, and I had great teachers in, in high school. Let me just say that. Uh, I just wasn't that interested in it. But now I am finding it far more fascinating the older I get in life because I've got so many questions about why we're here, how we got here, the nature of human beings, natural history, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I wanted to ask you about the natural side of things, natural history, the ability for us to actually be here and be with one and our surroundings and that sort of thing. Have we gone or why have we gone so far away from the, the original side of things? Do you find that a good thing or a bad thing? If that question makes well, I sense. Think, I think in a sense, it's a bad thing because when I look for children today, most of them have virtually no knowledge of the natural world. You know, if you particularly since more and more people live in cities, the exposure that children have to the natural world is getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, you literally have children who are amazed when they first see a cow or a mouse or something of the sort, or going into a backyard and actually see a variety of insects. And I think that's really unfortunate because what you don't see and don't appreciate and don't understand you have no intention of looking after it. So in terms of maintaining our stewardship of nature, which is our role, we really need to learn more about it because, you know, if you don't know something, you can't love it. Mm. How long have you been studying this for? I have been studying fossils basically since for about 40 years now. So, Wow. How does... Or does anything still surprise you the more you study them? Oh, yeah. No, any anything. Every time you think you have something figured out, you find something new that really puts everything else in question again. So it's wonderful because it's really is a lifelong learning experience, which is something that very few people can have. Mm. Because, you know, this constant, there's so little we still know about the world around us and its history that there's always room for new discoveries. So when sometimes when I have young students coming in and say, is there still anything to be found out there? And I said, oh, you know, how much time do you have sit down? I'll tell you just a few things. So. Which I personally think is, is marvelous because it appeals to the curious side of me, as I'm sure it does with you. But is, yeah. there, is there something that you've recently discovered that you possibly had thought about when you first started that now it's all changed your mind mm -hmm. right now? Yeah, like for instance, one thing that I'm very interested in is these phenomena of mass extinctions when really large numbers of organisms both on land and in the sea disappear. And we're constantly learning new things about it that it's far more complicated than people sort of think about it. Like for instance, you know, people now accept by and large that dinosaurs became extinct because a major extraterrestrial object hit the earth. But even there, you know, we just once once you get that, you start when you sort of dissect it in more detail, it turns out that the story is far more complex than we had thought. So for instance, dinosaurs disappear, including the little dinosaurs. But on the other hand, a lot of other animals survived. Why is mm. that? You know, just, mm. so we're sort of trying to figure out biological factors. Is it, for instance, that smaller animals have an easier time going into burrows or animals that live in the water are somehow insulated from some of the facts? And that's something that we're constantly making new discoveries about. And, you know, it turns out that this is far more complex than we had ever thought. And that's really important, both 
in order to satisfy our own curiosity, but also sort of in a broader context, because we talk about what climate change is going to do. And actually, we have case stories from the geological history of our planet, because mm. this has happened before. We have had atmospheres that were super warm, yet life thrived in them, but it was very different life from what we have today. And so it's very interesting into looking into the details, how animals and plants adapt to different kinds of environments and what that means for us. I mean, we are blessed with the fact that we have technology and technology will help us address some of the issues, but there are some issues of such a scale right now that we don't have the technology to address those. So, you know, right now, I think we sort of literally be able to put band-aids on some of the issues, but, you know, the bigger problems have not been addressed. Like, for instance, what will agriculture look like worldwide in 2100? Is there still enough in terms of resources to feed the world's population, which keeps growing as well. What happens if sea levels significantly rise, as they're already beginning to do? What, what does it imply for the fact that most people right now live in an area close to a coast? So these, mm -hmm. these are all very important things where paleontology can actually offer some information. We know what happened in the past. For instance, one of my colleagues studies in a period of global warming that happened 50 million years ago. And at that time, over a period of about 500,000 years, things changed really dramatically, particularly here in North America, where this phenomenon has been explored a lot. Species disappear, new species come in, the vegetation changes. And then after a while, things cool down again. Some of the old species return, but in a way, you have basically a complete reset of what is happening. And that has very important implications. Imagine that you know, there's some future world in which only a small population of humans can live, whereas other organisms thrive. I was going to actually ask you that question about how mass extinction. You kind of beat me to the punch <laughs> there. It, it, is, it is fascinating to me how, say, for example, I, I think the narrative is that a massive meteor struck the earth and, and wiped out all the dinosaurs. That seems to be the main narrative that I was hearing right. growing up and, and, and such. Um, and um, uh, that sort of interested me more now because I didn't really, I took it as gospel growing up. And now mm -hmm. I'm just like, okay, fair enough. Uh, I'm older now, starting to question the logic. Well, what about all the other animals? Like all the other big animals, it's just like this targeted media <laughs> that yeah. just wiped them all out. Like it, it just, it fascinates me. Like, so is there anything that we can sort of dive into here that you've found looking at fossils, looking at how things have, have developed over time? Can we, figure out how those other animals were able to survive this mass extinction? Yeah, yeah most, most of the large animals went extinct. So it's really sort of smaller, say medium-sized things up to the size that humans have that survived the event. But all of the really large animals like the giant sea reptiles, dinosaurs on land, the large flying reptiles that were distributed worldwide, all of those disappeared. And so it's, it's an interesting question. So when we now reconstruct these events in detail, it turns out that once you have the impact, the first thing that happens is that you basically throw up so much dust 
that it blankets the atmosphere and a lot of lot less sunlight comes down and that destroys the vegetation and everything that is dependent on it. So you get this cascade. The vegetation is affected, plant eaters are affected, and of course then the meat eaters have no foods to go after, so they go extinct. So it's generally sort of smaller, less specialized animals that did well and were also the ones that then were the colonizers thereafter. And at that time, they could then evolve into a whole new variety of ecological niches that allowed them to diversify. And I think ultimately the fact that we are here now is part in large part due to that extinction event. I don't think primates would have ever evolved much from the little shrew-like creatures <laughs> that there were in the early days. I think the big question that Jurassic Park sort of tries to answer is what would life be like if we had dinosaurs in our world, like coexisting. Yeah. And I, for one, don't want to face up against a T-Rex or Velociraptors or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, no way. Get, uh, run and try and run the other direction. But do we know, how do we know how old the earth actually is? If we're looking at fossils and, and all that sort of stuff, does technology help us determine that? Or yes, how yes, do we, we determine it before? What, what, we, what we do is something called radiometric or sometimes radioisotopic dating. The fact is that certain elements that are radioactive decay in a, at a predictable rate over time. So, for instance, uranium, if left to its own devices, slowly changes over into lead. So what we can do nowadays is sort of extract single crystals, particularly from volcanic rocks, vaporize them with a powerful laser beam, and then measure the ratio of uranium to lead in that. And that gives us an age for that particular crystal. Wow. And so we do this, repeat this for a whole bunch of crystals from the same sample, and then we get a date for that rock. Now that works best for volcanic rocks, but there are actually now ways to even get like isolated crystals that have been sort of eroded out and then put into sediments and date those. Another thing is that we use fossils from well-dated rocks and compare them with fossils elsewhere. So for instance, it will be perhaps a surprise that certain animals that lived about 350 million years ago in Europe also were found in Australia. So we can we can actually correlate these two points because at that time the world looked completely different. Much of the northern hemisphere continents were actually in the southern hemisphere. And you know, they were all parts of very different land masses that just over time then slowly moved apart because the Earth's crust's motions have been continuous since basically since the beginning of Earth. And so, you know, the continents keep moving around. And with them, of course, life on them moves around as well. How do we know how accurate it actually is? Well, this is being tested time and again. In the old days, the measurements were still very coarse. So you had like error rates of like a million or two million years, which if you look at something that's 400 million years old, is not terribly upsetting. But, you know, for of course, for a human mind, it's unimaginable. Even a million years is like way beyond anyone's <laughs> comprehension. But now we have gotten it so exact that, for instance, in the early Mesozoic, the time that I'm interested in, we have sometimes errors now of just a few tens of thousands of years which of course is longer than human history, but still yeah. for something that say happened 200 million years ago, that is very precise. How many time periods do we have exactly? 
Well, the, it's basically the what's called the Phanerozoic, which started yeah. about 540 million years ago. It's basically divided into three big intervals. That's the Paleozoic, which is basically in multicellular life, first really diversified. You get the first plants, you get the first animals on land, the first vertebrates, the backbone animals on land. Then you have the Mesozoic, which is the age of reptiles. And then 66 million years ago, after the great extinction, is the beginning of the dinosaurs. That's the beginning of the time when mammals became dominant. And you'll focus more on the Mesozoic. Mesozoic, yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm a dinosaur nut. So <laughs> <laughs> were, were you like so that as a kid? Me. Yes, I, I actually got interested in fossils when I was four years old. I got this wonderful book, which had reconstructions of ancient life, which were created by this really remarkable team that was a Czech paleontologist and a Czech academic painter who did these amazing reconstruct, very life-like environments with these animals in there. And I just thought this is like the most wondrous thing. I mean, I had already great interest in animals. I would drag my parents to the zoo and aquarium all the time. But to sort of see these creatures and think that they once populated the earth and that these were creatures that were so unusual in appearance, so huge. I mean, almost unimaginably large. I mean, I'd seen elephants, but then there were dinosaurs that would dwarf any elephant out there today. And so I was just fascinated. I told my parents very proudly that I was going to be a paleontologist. Of course, my parents sort of you know, took that in the same vein that, say, one's parents would take the fact that I'm going to become an astronaut or fireman or something of that sort. But then when, you know, I reached the age where I was going to go to university, my parents sort of were really concerned that I really wanted to do this for a living because in my family, you know, people had sort of more, quote, respectable academic professions like lawyers and medical doctors and so on. But, but I persisted. I remember my father at one point was very sort of you know, upset. He thought like, yeah, paleontology, that's just not a career to be made in that. So he said, is there anything else that you would consider studying? Because I already mixed the idea of medicine, even though I'm very interested in anatomy, but I just didn't want to practice medicine on people and perhaps not succeed in healing them. So I said, yes, art history. And of course, my my dad just sort of basically just grabbed his forehead and said, okay, at least paleontology is a science, so do paleontology. <laughs> and art history was a genuine interest of mine. I mean, basically, everything that I do and am interested in is an outgrowth of the fact that I'm very interested in history. History, to me, is like, you know, the be-all and end-all of, of things that I want to sort of learn about. So I study human history in a way. Paleontology is just a vast extension of history back in time. So it's, to me, all a continuum. I bet your father was proud when the first Jurassic Park film came out and he saw yeah. that Adam Graham was a paleontologist. And he's like, my son's a paleontologist too. Yeah, so exactly. That was the first time that I think it sort of dawned on them that it was not just such an obscure undertaking as that thought. <laughs> Hollywood's made your profession famous, my friend. Yeah, uh, no, it certainly gave us huge exposure. And the other good thing about these movies was that they have really interested a lot of members of the public in paleontology and young young people, both boys and girls, have gotten really interested because for a long time, just like in all of the earth sciences, we had this real gender imbalance because 
geology was sort of a macho science, you know, yeah. you sort of all compete on how much beer you could drink and, you know, do other other things. And this was not very welcoming to women. But now, it actually, even having female stars in these movies has really made all the difference. So that now when I go to a meeting, I would say it's almost 50-50 already now. Whereas uh-huh. when I first went to a scientific meeting, there, there was a few women, but there were all sort of honorary men, you know, the kind of type who would smoke pipes or cigars and not be very, very female in so many ways. <laughs> I think we need both, to be honest, because both have two yeah. different no, no. perspectives, Absolutely. which I, no, I think it is marvelous. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Hans, going back to talking about how we all got here. And this is a question that I've been curious about from the perspective of a paleontologist and I guess evolutionary understanding of it. How did we get here to start off with? And then why in, why in the world? So once we are here, why in the world would there have to be this mass extinction of certain species and just keeping, I guess, other animals here and and humans here and and that sort of thing. Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, that's sort of the fundamental story of life. It's always this continuous birth of new species and extinction of other species. There's like no species that is extinction proof. It's over over time. You can actually sort of almost sort of like an actuarian type analysis. You can say the species like mammals have an average lifespan of X million years. Some other thing has a much shorter expected lifespan. That doesn't mean that they all die at that point. Some die earlier, some die at a later point. But ultimately, as, as species try to adapt uh, to their environment, the environment constantly changes. It's particularly true for climate. And that ultimately makes it impossible to really, for most species, to survive for very long because most species specialize in very particular ways of making a living. And when the sort of scenario around them changes completely, they disappear. So this is the the example again with dinosaurs. If the big dinosaurs had been around, a lot of things wouldn't have been possible for us because we're sort of a medium-sized animal and like our early ancestors were these sort of very small creatures. They were probably scurrying around in the trees or on the ground. And they really ecologically didn't in any sense compete with dinosaurs. But imagine a more large, a larger animal like us competing against, say, a velociraptor or a, a troodontid, you know, these sort of small, fairly intelligent predatory dinosaurs. That would have been a whole different picture. Yeah. And so it really you basically have to sort of create sort of a tabula rasa by eliminating these things to allow primates, much like the other mammal groups, to come into their really sort of prime. Have you found any evidence to suggest that there was a worldwide flood at some point? No, we have. What has happened, however, is that sea levels have changed dramatically over time. So, for instance, during the Cretaceous period, there was much higher sea level. So a lot of parts, for instance, most of Europe was just a bunch of little islands because sea levels were probably as much as 100 to 120 meters higher than they are today. Then there were other periods when sea levels were a lot lower. Like, for instance, during the last ice age, 
sea levels, so much water was locked up in these huge glaciers that covered much of the Northern Hemisphere that, you know, for instance, here where I'm living in Washington, I could have probably gone 100 miles out into what is now the Atlantic Ocean and been on dry ground. So that's, wow. it has constantly changed. There have been, of course, huge floods regionally, for instance, perhaps the most spectacular flood in, in some more recent geological history was the Mediterranean, at least twice, got plugged up at what's now the Strait of Gibraltar by uh -huh. geological events. So the entire Mediterranean dried out. And you had this vast, vast valley. And then at a certain point, because of another geological event, the strait reopened. And Imagine the waterfall that would have come in from the Atlantic Ocean, filling this up over probably dozens, hundreds of years. It would have been really spectacular. And, and similarly, locally, you had big events, like, for instance, in the Black Sea, there was an event like that. And some of these things happened when humans were around. So I think the stories that we hear in various religions and in various historical traditions are probably based on such events. There have been truly catastrophic events, even like, for instance, in the last ice age here in North America, in Western North America, there's this area called the Scablands, which is really strange looking. It looks like some gigantic hands carved out the land. And what happened there was that there was a huge ice age lake which was blocked probably by an ice and rock dam, that dam failed and literally trillions of gallons of water just rushed out and completely changed the landscape. So imagine you were there as a human being and you see something like that and you just think like that's the end of the world, you know, even though it was in a sense a regional event. I promise we will get to the dinosaurs in just a moment, but I, I want to stay on this point for a moment. Do you think that all that being said with the way that I guess history has portrayed that some species go extinct and others yeah. new life appears and that sort of thing. So do you think that human life will go extinct at some point? I think so. Yeah, I do think so. I think the fact that, that we have technology, we can probably sort of extend our, our time on Earth. And it's quite possible that eventually humans will evolve in like our species, Homo sapiens, into something different, perhaps even more, more intelligent, sort of, you know, beyond sapiens level. And maybe, you know, if we, for instance, at some point manage to actually get off this planet and settle elsewhere, that there will be a continuation of our species as well in, in the form of perhaps some more derived, more advanced form than somewhere else. But overall, I think, you know, we just, we, I mean, we have only, our particular species has only been around for about 200,000 years. So unless we sort of blow ourselves up or make the, uh, make the earth so inhospitable that there's no possibility for us living on it, I think, you know, we could still have a good run. The way the world is heading, Hans, I don't think you're too far off with blowing ourselves up. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Sadly, yes. yes. Uh, yeah, sorry, you go. Between nuclear weapons and biological weapons and chemical weapons, I think we, we can, you know, greatly reduce the human population by accident. So yeah. it doesn't make much, you know, sadly there are countries that think that they need to attack other countries to, to get land, to get other resources, as we just saw in recent events. And so, you know, humans have uh, sometimes, and some anthropologists have referred to our species as killer apes. 
And yep. sadly, there's some truth in that. Yeah. Lots of pride going around. Pride, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ambition, yeah. Yeah, that too. Greed, it's like greed, that's probably the most important thing. Greed, power, all those things, domination, yeah. those words that we've given meaning yeah. to, sadly, that come as a result of, yeah, human human beings trying to just take over things. Like yeah, we've created a lot of problems and we've also created a lot of solutions, but it's like, which one is going to overtake the other? Is it the problem or a solution? So to speak. Like for some of the major issues that we're facing right now, particularly climate change, we do have solutions, but right now a lot of, business leaders and, of course, the politicians who depend on them heavily see these solutions as far too expensive. And they're more, you know, I saw this hilarious cartoon some time ago where this gentleman in a very tattered suit sat around with some sort of rough-looking kids around a fire and said, for a brief moment there, we created wonderful value for our shareholders. But obviously, the earth had gone to hell in the meantime. <laughs> and that's sadly the case. You know, we're still, I mean, for instance, the, the major fossil fuel companies have all manner of ideas on how to do things without fossil fuels. But right now, they still have an abundance of such resources. And they, of course, want to use them because, you know, that makes good sense from a business, business point of view. Yeah, I think... As human beings, we should be good stewards of the the earth that we do have and are blessed to live on. But sadly, we do have those people that crave more money, more power, more prestige, all those things. And we do have the solutions, but it's like, will those solutions, like I said before, will they take over eventually the problem? Um, Yeah, yeah, it's lots to think about, to be honest, Hans. And I think little old me and here in Sydney, Australia, I can do my bit to be sustainable mm-hmm. and, and try yeah. and keep this earth going <laughs> as best as I can. You all can do. I mean, you know, you try to do the, you try to live in a, a way that is ecologically reasonably sensible. Of course, it's a tricky thing for us because many of us are so used to having all kinds of things at our fingertips. And, you know, we would really sort of be concerned about our creature comforts, you know, if you suddenly couldn't get like your nice steak and your nice beer and you live in a house with air conditioning and drive a big car and all that. So, you know, a lot of people really are very skeptical about this because they say, well, even if I do this, does it really make a difference? And the answer is yes, it does. Because if you have a critical mass of such people, it can make a difference. It may at least slow down things a bit rather than, you know, the rather accelerated speed of change that we see now. Those small things matter in the yeah. long run and the big picture. So Absolutely. even even the smallest cog in a wheel makes a huge difference in that wheel right. actually going forward. Yeah, they say. Um, Hans, I want to get into dinosaurs now, uh, which mm-hmm. I've been waiting <laughs> waiting for. Uh, do you think that we could bring the dinosaurs back like they do in Jurassic Park movies one day? Is that even possible? I don't- I don't think so, because the problem is that, yes, we have ancient DNA, but the problem is that in most cases, it is way too degraded. So yeah. imagine we even we find some hypothetical amber that has a mosquito in it that has dinosaur blood in it. In the Jurassic Park movies, they, they do it all wrong because they take amber that's only 30 or 40 million years old 
and that wouldn't have any dinosaur DNA in it other than bird DNA. So, But say we found like Cretaceous amber with a mosquito with dinosaur blood in it. If we actually got DNA out of that, it would be a few hundred bases or base pairs. And wow. a dinosaur would have been just like a human being, something that probably had billions of bases. So it would be the equivalent. Imagine in the old days when we had telephone books, imagine you had the telephone book for Sydney and you just took out a few names and then tried to reconstruct the population of Sydney from that would be impossible. And the problem is that there's no other guy to help you. In Jurassic Park, they say, oh, we, we used frog DNA. Well, that, that would be a complete failure in any case because frog DNA has very little in common with reptile, particularly sort of dinosaur DNA, which would have been very much like bird DNA because birds are directly descended from dinosaurs. So that, you know, so I really don't think, and then even say, say we throw all of the rules of science aside, all of our experiences, and we actually manage to get enough DNA to make a baby dinosaur. This baby dinosaur would hatch into a world that is full of new diseases, parasites. There might be nothing for it to eat. It might die right, right then and there. So I don't think sort of like, even though it's a wonderful idea to create some sort of Jurassic Park scenario, it, I don't think it will ever be technically possible. So even if we got, say, for example, the DNA of a crocodile, and we mixed it with the DNA of a bird, mm -hmm. nothing would still, spawn from there, that? There's still, well, there's still, there are a lot of matches, but there's still enough not matches that it would not work because it's really, it's almost like, it's sort of like a zipper. Imagine you take part of a zipper and put a slightly different zipper in, it doesn't work anymore. And that's exactly yeah. the problem that we see with using DNA, so. And we can't make our own DNA, make our own animals, or is that no, messing because, with nature too Because much? we really don't know what the DNA was that made those particular organisms. I mean, we can, we're now at the point where people can probably already make very simple synthetic life, but in order to make a dinosaur, we really would need to know a lot more about the genetic control, even for basic anatomical features. I mean, we're even at a point for humans, even though there have been huge advances in human medicine to use like gene therapy and so on. And we know now what a lot of parts of the human genome code for in terms of things that we do. Even there, you know, we just, there's so many things that we don't know. I mean, why do I have an ear that has that shape? Or, you know, why, why have, do I, when I was young, I had hay fever. Why did yeah. I get hay fever, you know, when the rest of the world doesn't get hay fever? Those kinds of things, you know, those, there's still so much to be learned. And then take an animal that we really have only bones of, and it becomes very, very difficult to even begin to guess how a genome for such an animal would look like. How does, looking at fossils, how much do we actually, or how much can we determine about the animal, just looking at the bone structure? And is there any DNA within the bone structure at all or no? Usually, usually not. I mean, the, the sort of fossils that have useful DNA only go back a few hundred thousand years, maybe sort of a million. They have some reports, slightly, even slightly older fossils. But something that is 60, 70, 80, 200 million years old will not have 
DNA that is unaltered. DNA is a very delicate molecule. We even have the situation where, say, if you have a human body that has been out too long, forensic researchers will have a very hard time getting enough useful DNA to even attempt an identification. And so because DNA is, for instance, very sensitive to water and sensitive to pH changes in the environment, which happen all the time. And so even, even a human corpse, like in a, in a crime scene, often doesn't have enough DNA in it to, to allow a profile for the victim. Wow. This is interesting. So where, where have you found the most fossils? Where in the world have you found the most fossils when it comes to dinosaurs? For dinosaurs, there are sort of certain areas that are really top-notch. There's Central Asia, Argentina and Brazil, the United States and Canada, and increasingly some other places as well. Like we're now getting a lot of dinosaurs out of Africa. And in Australia since the 1970s, there's been an enormous number of important dinosaur discoveries, particularly in Queensland. Queensland is sort of becoming the dinosaur capital of Australia. What sort of dinosaurs? All manner of Cretaceous dinosaurs. There are also some older dinosaurs, but I think the Cretaceous ones are the the really exciting ones. There's a place called Winton, which has several areas, sort of like a a station, agriculture station there. And right near it are all these exposures where people have found just a bewildering variety of dinosaurs. And it's very interesting dinosaurs because most of them have relationships to those on other southern continents like South America, uh, Africa, India, and so on. Because once upon a time, that was all one big landmass. And it's only towards the end of the reign of the dinosaurs that the continents started separating. And even then, there was still a link between South America and Australia through Antarctica, because until about 40 million years ago, Antarctica was still a pretty nice place without ice, so animals could wander all the way over into Australia. So Australia has, I mean, there's been such a wonderful surprise, all these new dinosaurs. And they keep finding new things, particularly in Queensland, and in also down in New South Wales, where there are these wonderful coastal exposures that have yielded all manner of dinosaurs. And there actually, there's a very interesting place in New South Wales where you actually get dinosaurs in an environment that was incredibly high latitude at the time these dinosaurs lived. And you have permafrost soils. And the dinosaurs actually there had to hibernate. And actually, there's a very nice line of evidence that these animals were warm-blooded because for a cold-blooded animal, that would be impossible. People think that temperatures may have dropped to as little as four or five Celsius or even below freezing in some cases. And there were dinosaurs around. So, you know, it just showed us, it was actually the first glimpse that we had that dinosaurs were far more adaptable than we had ever thought. Because when you think dinosaurs, you think, oh, lush, forests, you know, in a tropical setting, sort of like maybe northern Queensland or Florida, something like that. But in fact, dinosaurs lived in all manner of places. We have dinosaurs now that lived in in really unforgiving deserts. We have dinosaurs at the poles, both North and South Pole. And so, you know, dinosaurs were far more complex than people used to give them credit for. And that's one of the really exciting things that basically since 1970, we have completely rewritten the story of dinosaurs. Before that, we thought, oh, they're just overgrown, stupid, big versions of lizards and crocodiles. No, they were actually 
very active animals that could adapt to a wide variety of circumstances. There were little dinosaurs. There were absolutely mind-bogglingly gigantic dinosaurs, like the ones that we now know from Patagonia. We get dinosaurs that are perhaps 80 to 100 tons in weight and 40 meters long. I mean, just imagine just unbelievable. In fact, the only animal that we have today in that size range is the blue whale, which mm. gets up 30 meters and about 150 ton weight. But of course, it lives in water, so it's much easier to be really big in water than it is on land. I mean, there were really dinosaurs that, to me as a biologist, almost sort of my, blow up my mind because I think, like, how can an animal like that even move about? How can it get enough to eat to sustain itself? So. Yeah, maybe maybe the world was so different back then that we had a lot of lush vegetation and all that sort of stuff. And then yeah. humans came along and sort of industrialized things and kind of yeah. messed things up quite a bit. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, That's definitely the case. And we know that. So, I mean, look yeah. in Australia, so many, once people came to Australia, uh, first the, the Aborigines and then later on the European settlers, you know, the landscape changed because humans modify the landscape to suit their needs. Yeah. And it's very simply, that's the story. <laughs> I mean, look at, uh, I think it's the white wolf or the white tiger, those sorts of animals. I mean, they're being hunted to extinction. Yeah, tigers, uh, are, tigers are being hunted to extinction, particularly in China. Yeah, which is you know, people really, want their uh, body parts for folk medicine. So yeah, same with um, I think there was a massive thing with whales too. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. that has and, that has fortunately slowed down, and now main, mainly Japan that still kills whales for no really apparent economic reason. So yeah, yeah I think it's just, just because the rest of the world said don't do it. They decide, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, have you looked at, say, some of the, or can we look at some of the dinosaurs that existed in the sea, sand-based? Is there any fossils that well, were actually, discovered there? Most dinosaurs were on land. There weren't actually any dinosaurs that went into the ocean. But huh. we find occasionally dinosaurs in marine rocks. But those were like cadavers that floated out to sea from probably a river delta in, into the ocean. Uh, the big animals that lived in the in big reptiles that lived in the Mesozoic seas were animals that were not closely related to dinosaurs. There were, for instance, there was a group called mosasaurs, which are gigantic relatives of the Komodo dragon that went into the ocean or the guana in Australia. Then there were these extinct groups that are probably more closely related to lizards and snakes that also went into the ocean, like the plesiosaurs, the things that have these either enormous necks, tiny heads, or enormous heads, like there's a, an animal from Queensland called Chronosaurus, which had a you know three-meter skull with enormous teeth in it. So these were very impressive creatures, but they were not dinosaurs. The one group that is related to dinosaurs, even though they're strictly speaking not dinosaurs, are the pterosaurs, the, the flying reptiles. And you know those were impressive creatures, the largest ones that we know had a wingspan of about 10 to 12 meters, which is about the wingspan that a lot of fighter planes have now. So, you know, just imagine these creatures. I mean, it's just, these are just mind-boggling creatures. And so, you know, for just speaking for myself, you know, every every day I go into the museum and look at my fossils, you know, it's just such a wondrous world. It's such a treat that, you know, every day I'm privileged to see that. 
Was there something out there that was worse than a T-Rex? Oh, yeah. There were actually at least two large meat-eating dinosaurs that were even bigger than a T-Rex. There's one called Giganotosaurus from Argentina. And then there's another one called Cicarodontosaurus, which was distributed all over North Africa. And they're actually, in the case of Giganotosaurus, they were probably not just longer, but also heavier than T-Rex. And Cicarodontosaurus was definitely longer than a T-Rex. So an enormous Cacarodonosaurus is particularly cool because it has these teeth that look like the teeth on a great white. They're these blades that have serrated edges fore and aft. And when you see a tooth, it looks just like a, a great white tooth, except much bigger. So. How many of those have you found currently? Cacarodonosaurus is actually pretty common in North Africa. There's, the original mm-hmm. specimen was unfortunately destroyed during World War II, but more recently they have found really nice specimens of it in Morocco. And then the other, another dinosaur that is really bigger than T-Rex, but probably not as heavy, was Spinosaurus, the one with this spectacular sail on its back, which is probably longer than T-Rex. I love it was a very unusual dinosaur because it was probably the only dinosaur that would regularly go and, and hunt fish and things like that. So it would go into the water. So it could actually breathe underwater or... It- well, it probably sort of, I, I imagine that it's sort of probably just like a crocodile would go into the water, capture prey, and then sort of come up again. You know, oh, clearly was it still had to breathe the air. They, all of these animals, even today, whales and turtles and so on, have to come up occasionally for air. So, because, except you know, for the sharks. Shark, well, sharks have gills, so sharks are fine. They can stay in the water and they don't have to really come up for air. Yeah, we're, we're talking about mammals. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah th- this is um, this is cool stuff. So, the T Rex is obviously a really, really popular dinosaur. Oh yeah, yeah. Made famous by, of course, Jurassic Park, uh, and 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 those alike. Um, how accurate are those movies? By the way, I know you've been asked this question a million mm-hmm. times over, but how accurate oh, yeah. do they actually get it? Like in terms of percentage wise, eighty percent there. Well, it's, it, it, differs, it differs from dinosaur to dinosaur. Like the T-Rex that has been produced is very good, although some of the things that they ascribe to it have no basis in fact. So like in the first movie, they say that if you don't move, the T-Rex can't see you or it can't smell <laughs> you. Well, when you look at a T-Rex brain case and look where the holes are for the different nerves, you immediately see that that is not the case. T-Rex would have had really keen eyesight and T-Rex has the brain, the part of the brain that's involved in receiving smells is huge. So they clearly had a very keen sense of smell. Of course, if they had portrayed it like that in the movie, the movie would have been rather short because (laughs) the Harrison Ford character Mm -hmm. and the kids would have been eaten and that would have been the end of the show. So that, that didn't, so obviously that didn't, but the reconstruction itself was actually very good. And in the more recent, the, the newest movie, they have sort of really gone to a much more effort to get them right. So, because sometimes it's simply a thing that, you know, these movies have scientific advisors. They sort of talk and talk and talk, you know, talking heads like you, you again, generally get from academics, but then the filmmakers go like, oh no, no, that doesn't really fit my story so well. So for instance, the, the raptors in the movie are a great case in point. When uh, the first Velociraptor was shown to Steven Spielberg, he apparently was not impressed by it because it was a relatively small animal, five to six feet in length, 
And, you know, when it stood next to you, it would have been just having a big dog standing next to you. So that's not really very frightening. So they just scaled it up, you know, so put it on steroids. And fortunately for the people who made the movie, a few years later, people actually thought, uh, found giant raptors in various places of the world. In fact, I just discovered just recently, it's not yet published, a really gigantic raptor from Central Asia. Um, only a toe bone, but it's a very, they have a very characteristic toe bone that supports this huge claw on their foot. So that, that was resolved. But the other thing is the raptors have no feathers. And we know from beautifully preserved fossils in China that these animals, which were closely related to birds, in fact, had a body covered with feathers. Huh. Now, there are two, two theories why they don't give them feathers, except for a few sort of sprites at the back of the head in the latest movie. And that is, it's very difficult to animate feathers because hair is already, you can keep hair fairly flat, but yes. feathers move a lot. If you wa sit, watch and sit, see a bird sort of moving about, there's a lot of movement there. And animators hate that because you know, it makes it really tricky to do animation. The other reason is that if you see a feathered raptor, some movie makers think that it doesn't look as scary as these scaly, creepy creatures that kind of look like the gremlins in that movie way back. You know, sort of like, ah, oh, it's like, you just sort of like, no, this is not the kind of thing I want to deal with. Whereas, you know, a new raptor in, with a feather coat would probably look more like a really nasty chicken. So, you know, <laughs> <big chicken. laughs> so, you know, you'd see why there would be a predicament for movie makers there to, you know, between finding the right balance between scientific accuracy and what scares people. So got to have that fear factor as part of Absolutely, it. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Were you part of advising the latest film at all? No, no, but a friend of mine was. So. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I saw a video that you did. Uh, you're answering, I think it was on Wyatt or something. Yeah, yeah. You were answering a bunch of questions, which I, I watched <laughs> and I loved. So okay. I, I tried, I was trying to ask some questions that weren't actually asked in that video because you did answer quite a lot of curious people's questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Hans, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Do you have a favorite fossil at the moment oh actually it would be so like asking which one of my cats is my favorite <laughs> cat i really couldn't say so I, I just one one of my colleagues said once you know how the problem with Francis is that he loves all fossils <laughs> <laughs> which is still good man honestly yeah no i, I mean can't. i just i just rejoice in seeing all of you know creation and splendor so it's it's honestly amazing. Is there what's next for you, Hans? What are you studying next? What's going on for you? Well, I'm continuing my my studies of these various extinction events. I have some new places that I want to check out for fossils from time intervals that we haven't really sort of carefully studied yet, where we know very little about the species diversity. So for instance, there's this big extinction event, the biggest of all extinction events, about 252 million years ago. And I'm now looking at animals that live just right after that. So do they show me evidence of extinction or in fast recovery, or is there something very different going on? So that's, again, a very interesting sort of topic to look at. And of course, there are constantly new dinosaurs found somewhere, so that's very exciting as well. Do you think that one day you'll ever write a book? Oh, I have already written some 
scientific books. And yes, at some point I want to do a popular book. So I've did, I've written a lot of popular articles and things like that, but I haven't written a popular book yet. Right now it's sort of a bad time because a lot of my colleagues are doing things like that, particularly some of my younger colleagues. And so, you know, just right now it's not the time to do it. Trying but to I think beat you to the punch. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> but, in a, you know, we're, we're sort of in friendly competition there. So, But I think there are things that I can write about that they can't. So, <laughs> I mean, you can write the dino book, the dinosaur book. Yeah. Man, like that yeah. would be, I'd read it, honestly. <laughs> I think a lot of people would read it too. And maybe there's already might... one really, there's a really nice book already called The Complete Dinosaur, which has basically anything you could possibly want to know about dinosaurs and then some, so... Yeah. So that that exists. <laughs> well, maybe you can make your own spin on that one of these days. Oh, yeah, no. I think yeah. the other thing that I would bring in is sort of a lot about experiences around the world and being, as I said earlier, being really interested in history. When I go to an area, I really sort of immerse myself in the local history and try to, in some cases, you know, sort of learn about the arts and traditions in that area. So that I really sort of get a more holistic picture of the, the region that I'm visiting. Well, exactly. I mean, your story is fascinating. You've got a lot of wisdom and knowledge that you've garnered over the years, which is honestly incredible. And I would read the book, to be honest. Okay. And yeah, yeah, I think it'd be great. So Hans, I do want to be respectful of your time. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I've got two quick oh, final questions so for you, if you're okay, yeah. um, mm -hmm. with that. What do you love the most about yourself and your story? Well, I think it's sort of a story of persistence. It has not been easy to get to the point that I've been, but I've always, I, I just knew that I wanted to do this. And this is sort of what kept me alive when I was in sort of periods, like for instance, it took me quite a while to land a, a good job. I had some periods in university where I had some very negative influences trying to so sort of basically push me out of the field, those kinds of things. But I, I always knew that I was on the right track and I stayed with it. And I, I think persistence is absolutely key in any human enterprise. But uh -huh. also the other thing is to have people who are your mentors, who, who help you both, you know, as, as friends in, on the human side, but also as guides for, you know, not just the sort of technical aspects of science, but I very much think that there's all of a broader, almost, I would say, spiritual aspect to it. And that's still very important. I totally agree and relate to the persistence side of things. I have a saying that I want to share with you. It's be persistent mm -hmm. to remain consistent of the things that you want in life, Absolutely. which essentially mm -hmm. means don't ever give up. Just if you yeah. want something bad enough, work you your absolute butt off. Yeah. And eventually at some point, within reason, obviously, it will come sure. come yeah. to pass, which yeah. you've, you've... You have to have realistic expectations. So, you know, I would not sort of go for the moon or something. Yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I think your your curiosity, your creativity, and just your your willingness to continue doing what you're doing today, I think it's it's admirable. I think it's inspirational too. Hans, this is my final question for you. Sure. This is my my favorite question. I love asking all my guests mm -hmm. at the very end. It is a hypothetical one, but I mm -hmm. want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All mm -hmm. your friends and your family have decided to put together 
a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call mm-hmm. it magic for sake of argument. But mm-hmm. being able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday, what do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I think what that film would show, and it's not necessarily something that I wanted to show, is that I have. You know, I'm a very complex person who has many good attributes. Some some attributes perhaps not as good, but I think what what it would tell is the, an interesting life story. You know, we all have our unique life stories, and I think particularly at that age, I would have quite a bit of life story that could be told. And you know, it's not a, a linear path. It's sort of just like so much in life, even in a scientific career, depends on serendipity. And so, you know, seeing that sort of in a historical context, I think would be quite fascinating. And lots and lots of fossils. Absolutely. Always. <laughs> Which is amazing. Hans, yeah. I really, once again, enjoy this conversation with you. Can't Thank wait. Thank you so much for time. having me, Jay. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your advice once again, and your stories and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you so much. really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.